Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 202nd episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that got caught holding Oko's so you didn't have to. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. Good evening, everyone. Glad to be here. Looking forward to a pretty wild episode here, I believe so, uh, with all sorts of valuable information. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Not me anymore. I have uh, abdicated my Monday throne. Uh, I got a bunch of stuff brewing in real life that's just taking up too much time. So we've passed that mantle on to a new gentleman who I think you'll be pleased with. I was looking at his work. It's good stuff. But I will be remaining right here for all of your ear holes for the foreseeable future. Congratulations to David Sharman, our latest MTGPrice.com staff writer, taking on the Watchtower series on Mondays for Travis. You know, I'm hoping we'll we'll still get your uh, your detailed thoughts every once in a while when time allows. But uh, certainly happy to add another body to the team, and it won't be the last one. We're we're still looking to add a quote unquote fresh voices uh, member to the staff. And we're talking to a bunch of different people who have some ideas about how they would like to get involved. So we're hoping to make some more announcements on that sooner uh, rather than later. <coughs> but you know what, Travis? You know how I know that we are so awesome at this? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. Both of us have Okos on our desk that we could have buy listed, that we told everybody else to buy list, but somehow didn't find the time to send in on time. I didn't get a chance to do it because I have literally just sat down at my desk as we started the record and have been running around for the last two days. But I am going to post a picture on Twitter of the foil borderless Okos and the Mox Opal Inventions that I have. Oh. And it's, uh, it's a sad photo. It's... I don't know. It's at least it's somewhere between a rent and a mortgage payment. Somebody asked me on our Discord how much I thought the MPS uh, opals would drop, and I gave them a middling remark about a relatively modest drop, but I was dead wrong. They're down like a hundred dollars today or something. Oh my god! I mean that. Well, I feel okay. I feel like we see that relatively commonly, right? Oko took a plunge when it was banned in Pioneer, but it rebounded right away. Now, I expect Opal and Oko will take a pretty hard hit and not rebound nearly as hard because they don't have a constructed format really to claw back in with. But I I guess my thought is these cards get banned and lose value tend not to get hit that hard. Like they tend to recover within, what, six months or something like that. The the problem is that there are definitely people that have mentioned in our Discord and on social media that they're going to move in on these cards for personal use. Like some people want Opal, some people want Okos for Cube or EDH or Legacy or what have you. Um, But everybody's looking for a deal. Like there's no there's no reason to be rushing to pull the trigger because I don't think when Oko got banned in Pioneer um, and in Standard, it still had the you know, the backdrop of modern, but now that it's been removed from modern, it's really doesn't, you know, it's at best a occasional legacy and 
EDH card that I feel like if you whip it out in EDH after it's been triple banned, people are just going to give you the stink eye anyway. So, I mean, you... certainly certainly now that I'm caught holding a foil borderless Oko, I'll probably slip it into my ridiculously expensive Atraxa deck, but <laughs> it's not generating any value there. It's just collecting dust in my closet for when I pay, play EDH once a month. Yeah, if you play this to EDH, no one's going to be upset that the card is too good for EDH. They're going to be like, huh, so you got stuck with him and needed someplace to play him. <laughs> yeah. That'll that's exactly the reaction that will elicit. Um, so have you played Pioneer in real life yet? I have not. I have not. It, it looks fun, but uh, I just haven't found the time to get to a table. I finally had a slot last Friday where I Ellie was taking Alara out to some Bulgarian like folk music dance thing and uh i got to get to fnm on time um but it turned out that they have a weird thing at face-to-face toronto where if you show up at six you're playing four rounds of fnm if you show up at seven you're playing three rounds like you can come in on the tournament in round two and get like a an elective buy which basically puts you in the losers bracket (laughs) so losers bracket local fnm on a friday night is going to be a bunch of people just kind of playing whatever right and sure enough (laughs) the the first guy I had the misfortune of playing against was running Rat Colony, the uh, where you just get to run as many Rat Colonies as you want. And unfortunately, he bumped into me, who had just whipped out my uh, Frontier deck, Jeskai Dragons, and made a few little adjustments to it, put some Teferi Time Ravelers in there in the three slot, took out the Mantis Riders, and made, made it more of a control deck with Dragons at the top end, which means I have, I think five or six main deck sweepers so and i'm casting teferi upping it so i can cast sorceries at instant speed and then anger of the godsing people in their attack step <laughs> and it did not go well for the rat colony deck and then i had the advantage of playing against two more aggro decks the mono red deck that you've been that you call goblin rabble master related to and then a more traditional mono black deck uh, neither of which fared any better. So I still don't know if my deck's any good because I haven't run into any of the decks that should beat it. Yeah, I, it's funny you, you talk about the the round, the the 7 p.m. people, you know, you come in and you're in the loser's bracket of FNM, but I can see that both being like the loser's bracket, you know, people who lost the first round of FNM, but also all the guys who couldn't get out of work by six o'clock and like at 7 p.m half the room fills up with a bunch of ringers who <laughs> like it, yourself basically uh did, but probably not in significant numbers yeah it didn't i mean that certainly seems like a reasonable possibility it just didn't seem to play out that way i mean face-to-face games toronto is is a hotbed <laughs> of talent to say the least so you know i have a feeling i will not be able to replicate an undefeated result if i go back and show up at six but uh i like the format seemed fun um, and I'm certainly interested to pursue my random brew and see if it's any de- any in any way decent against real decks. Yeah, I bet. I bet if I was still playing regularly, I would be devouring Pioneer. Like that's all I would be doing: would be brewing decks and showing up with different stuff, and they'd all be awful. And it would be a great time. My favorite moment was I had two Soulfire Grandmasters on the table. And the black deck was attacking with four creatures or something. No, it was the mono red deck. Mono red deck was like Rabble Master plus a token, plus a couple of other attackers, like maybe Kari Zev, Skyship Raider with her monkey or something. And angering in their attack step and wiping the board and gaining like 36 or 40 life. 
mm-hmm. and then that, dropping an o- Ojutai and going to town. That sounds pretty severe. <laughs> <laughs> pretty severe. It's pretty. Yeah, the, the red deck doesn't like to see you gain 40. No, can't imagine. All right, I can put my cards down for six turns. You can play the game. Then I'll come back and finish this off. Yeah. All right, so what do we got this week? The usual, I uh, imagine. I, well, we have some black text here for you to read. Uh, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering single sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Well, now that we have established that, I will tell you that we have a show in four parts. Segment one, our top movers, the cards that have risen in price this past week. Segment two, our cards to watch, cards James and I think have a positive outlook. Segment three, our metagame week in review, Star City Modern Open and GP Austin also modern. And segment four, our topic of the week, former Wizards of the Coast employee and Dragon's Maze set designer Alexis Jansen joins us to discuss Theros Beyond Death. Speaking of Theros Beyond Death, 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 uh, it is the uh, the first the set. Our first card is out of this week in segment one. The top movers, Uro, Titan of Nature's Wrath, a card that if you've listened to the last two weeks, you know I think is fantastic. Um, prices have moved on this from twenty to thirty-two, based strictly on the pre-order hype. Since no one's actually casting this card yet, so we don't know if it's any good. I do think the card is legitimate, but even I can't condone keeping copies over thirty dollars. Uh, tier one standard mythic uh, with light sprinkling and other formats is really capping out at thirty to thirty-five. So you just kind of get got to get out of here for now. Um, but I would love to see a chance to get in on these again in like the seven to nine dollar range, probably. Yeah, I mean, like you, I'm high on the card, uh, low on the current price. You don't buy mythics. I, I don't even think you buy mythics for personal use. Like unless you're a top tier pro and you need to have your deck set for day one, this is the kind of card where at minimum you want to be waiting till release weekend, where people start undercutting each other. <laughs> and hopefully this gets down into the $14, 16 $18 range, depending on how good it's looking in the current, you know, the current slate of pro uh, promoted lists at that point. <coughs> Don't get me wrong, I think this card can do a lot of work in multiple formats. And I'll certainly be looking at where extended arts settle. But <clears throat> it's in many ways like... Now I want to say Oko, but it's a bad example. Um <laughs> there's a very there's a stronger possibility that it's going to go down than it's going to go up let's put it that way um yeah so you know wake me up when we're at the bottom and we can talk yep following that is cavalier thorns out of core 20 this is a card i feel like we've talked about a bunch over the last two or three weeks um it was on last week's at five to seven fifty and we talked about uh <laughs> umo compliment for standard uh this week 750 to 12 just kind of keeps going uh more uro hype basically um so not a huge jump about 60 percent, same as uro but clearly people think that this is going to be a thing in standard this has definitely been called out by multiple people in the mtg finance community big bricks of this were picked up in europe um in the last week so you know how much of that demand is is natural from players versus people thinking players are going to want the card has yet to play out um, show me the deck that's four Euro for Cavalier of Thorns, and you'll you'll have additional reasons to be interested in the card. 
Um, the thing about Cavalier is it was already seeing play in standard, and green decks t- tend to be the best decks in the format, or have been for the last six months or so. So Cavalier may may have a future this this winter and spring, almost no matter what. But one of the interesting things is there's not that many, ma- like Ari Lax pointed out on Twitter today, there's not that many major standard tournaments um, in the next few months. So with standard being in a bad spot coming into early 2020, it's unclear how much standard will move cards. Um, you know, if Thorn and Cavalier of Thorn and Uro pop up in a Pioneer deck, then we're in better shape. Um, but buy lists have been fairly generous on this card, so if I was holding a brick and I'm not, I would be looking for an exit. Um, sadly, I'm holding Cavalier of Night, which randomly showed up in the winning modern deck on the SCG Open this weekend, but we'll talk about that a little later. Okay. Uh, after that is Prosh, Sky Raider of Care out of M25, uh, 2 to 330. This is on the back of a Bylus play. Um, looks like there was uh, an opportunity there to snag these cheap and ship them to Bylus and pick up some store credit bonus. Yeah, I remember seeing somebody in the MTG Finance community mention this week that they had flagged this as a buy list opportunity. I'm just looking up what uh, is being offered. Yeah, so CK offers 286 credit on this copy and 325 on the Commander 2013s. So if there was copies lying around at $2, <coughs> that's why it got flagged. Yeah, um, it's nice not little, terribly nice, popular. Nice buy list exit. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's fine, right? He's the 69th most popular commander. So, like, that's not bad, but it's not stunning either. Hmm. Yeah, good enough. Uh, The next card here kind of threw me for a loop uh, because I had actually picked this card as one of my cards for segment two. And then I flipped over to the Excel sheet to add it in, actually to put it all in. And then I looked up at our uh, James had filled in segment one. I'm like, oh, this is already here. I am not timely. Uh, that's Soul Flare out of Fate Reforged Foils 6211 uh, for not quite a double up. And you can still snag some copies in the seven-ish dollar range, six dollar range, but very few and far between. The Soul Flayer deck has been doing well in Pioneer, and it looks like Questing Beast is giving the deck a little bit more flexibility and reach than it has had in the past. It's been a bit of a one-trick pony, uh, but Questing Beast kind of serves a good mid-range strategy while also powering up Soul Flayer. So it looks like the deck might have a new angle that could be uh, end up being very serviceable. The more word, good word soup cards that are relatively easy to cast in the deck appear, and the more enablers they get to upgrade through over the months and years that allow them to stock the graveyard effectively, the better this deck gets. Like As a toolbox uh, combo deck, <coughs> Wizards isn't going to plan around it during design, so it, it will continue to get additional options as time goes on. And Soul Flayer is the linchpin card in the deck in the same way that the winning SCG modern list this week was all about Yawgmoth. So, and I don't see Soul Flayer having any risk of seeing a reprint this year unless, um, as with many things, it faces risk by showing up as a foil in the mystery boosters, the LGS versions that come out in a couple months. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. And I think that's, you know, that risk is omnipresent and relatively low. So not For any too, particular card. Yeah. Yeah. Not too torn up about it. 
Next on the list, we've got uh, one of your picks from recent days, uh, Goblin Rabble Master, the buy a box promo going from 8 to 15. It was a recent cast pick of yours uh, last week, the week before, something like that. And strong pick on the back of mono red decks being omnipresent in Pioneer, looking like they are set up for at least the next three to six months. I'd be hard pressed to imagine that the format will shift enough to, to boot them out. Um, it was a strong, always was a strong deck in uh, Frontier and has long been a um, uh, reliably present deck in standard formats. So <laughs> all the components are there to put the pressure on with red. And I would imagine sooner or later, red gets an, a better burn spell, like a lightning bolt analog. Um, not quite lightning bolt, but somewhere in between wild slash and lightning bolt and, and helps the deck stay on top of the heap. Oh yeah. Uh, red, I think is playing everyone is playing in pioneer kind of short, shorthanded. Um, and red only needs another, uh, oh shoot that light up the stage or skewer the critics, like anything like that. You know, we're going to see a little bit of that every set, and you only have, Red only needs one of those every other set, maybe, to kind of keep pace with the rest of the format. So it's hard to imagine Red falling behind. They they should be there uh, in Pioneer pretty much at any point in time. The only question would be if they evolve to a point where Rebel Master falls away. But given that he's doing a lot of work right now, uh, I don't see that happening right away. No. Um, I saw lots of Rebel Master at tables when I was playing last week. Um, it shows up on a line, online constantly. The deck's not that expensive, especially if you're not foiling it out. Um, <laughs> and there are some pieces that overlap with other formats. So um, a lot of people w- would have had some of this lying around if they played Mono Red and Standard, etc. All of that contributes to a fairly popular deck. <laughs> yep. What's, uh, what's following up on that? Uh, there's a little bit of motion on some Mana Rocks in EDH this week. Boros Signet from Plain Chase going from 2 to $4. Um, red and white obviously need Signets more than the green decks in EDH, so not surprised that somebody decided to mop some of those up. It was a couple of different versions of Boros Signet, actually, that showed the, the motion. And I'm going to assume that this was on the back of somebody noticing that there was a decent buy list play again. Uh, Boros Signet looks like you can get... Uh, not really, at least not so far. It looks like buy list support is somewhere between 50 cents and a dollar. Um, so it looks like more of a longer range play to me. Now that said, it's possible somebody already handed in their buy list. And um, before I looked at this data, um, which will crash the price. If you <clears throat> hand in a hundred copies of something, it's going to drop it to the floor. Well, um, I noticed we're looking at the plane chase 2012 copies, which to me, it's like one of those weird printings. Um, and which to me says, oh, there were just like 40 of these in the market or like 12 of these in the market relative to 300 of various other printings. And for whatever reason, somebody, you know, a couple of these disappeared and now it looks like it went to this big jump. But in reality, there's still hundreds of them from other printings available. Like nobody's going out of their way to get plain chase 2012 copies of Boros Signet. I don't believe that that's the case. Yeah. And, and. Typically what you're looking for, if there's a weird, unique printing like the LGS promo packs, sometimes they do represent a 20 or 30% bump on CK buy list or via channel fireball or cool stuff or whatever. Um, But that's not present here. So it's entirely possible that if you take a look at the market pricing for these, nothing's really moved on TCG. Yeah. 
However, the next card on the list definitely did some work this weekend <coughs> and proved me wrong, which is always tasty for some people. Um, Yawgmoth Thran Physician out of Modern Horizons uh, went from 10 to $20 and seems to be holding 18 or so market price pretty solidly so far um, on the back of winning the SUG Open in, as a four of in the hands of Aaron Barich. <coughs> Convincingly, I must say. Um I flagged it early on in the tournament on Twitter saying, well, here's a good test. I don't think that Modern can move the needle on a card like this um, because Modern hasn't had hardly any, has basically generated very, very few spikes since Pioneer was announced. And we're in this kind of doldrum phase post the holidays. So I predicted this isn't going to move much. I thought maybe it would go to 12 or 14 or 16 and then retreat pretty quickly. So it's already done better than I expected. Um, it does have a few things going for it, though. Modern Horizons Mythics are not as populous as one might imagine. They came out of expensive boxes. Um, and, you know, by comparison, Urza has played in the $30 to $40 range a lot and dropped recently because of uh, the premise that it, key components in that, you know, Oko Urza deck were going to get banned, so it, it retreated. But the ceiling was always, you know, had been established by Urza for where Yawgmoth could get to as a, you know, a mythic from the same set. Um, so it's not entirely surprising that a card could get there, but it's surprising to me that it's doing it on the back of one great modern result and some streaming that was that led up to it. I'm very curious to see whether this deck will get picked up and adopted more widely in the coming weeks. Uh, that's certainly something to watch because if it doesn't, I would worry that Yawgmoth will retreat. So I've been telling our members that I think Yawgmoth is a sell just as the safest play that allows you to get out up five or six bucks and get a little more mine, a little bit more value out of the modern horizons boxes that have been otherwise pretty stilted in recent months. I am also a little surprised that Yawgmoth, Yawgmoth here, uh, had any meaningful price increase. Uh, you know, there, I guess there's not enough in the market to prevent it from getting there uh, based on this little bit of excitement. Now, if Pioneer didn't exist, this would have went nuts and we would have been talking about it and it would have been really exciting. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in the w w w so, so clearly the seeds are there for this to have been a viable and exciting pick were it not for Pioneer. I would have guessed Pioneer would have created much more of a drag on the price spike here than we've apparently seen. Um, and I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I was very dubious that this would happen. And if you had asked me beforehand if this could happen, I would have said I, I wouldn't doubt on it. I wouldn't put money on it. It did happen. Can it happen again? Will it continue to pull weight? Like, is Modern more popular at this point that I'm giving it credit for? It's possible. Um, I know that, you know, I'm inclined to play these um, prudently and likely kind of stay away from Modern cards simply because I don't want to get burned. Uh, and this might be a a flash in the pan type of thing, a, 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 an isolated event, but maybe not. Maybe modern will keep putting up results. Uh, there's certainly incentive to go back to modern right now after wizards upended the format pretty dramatically this week. Uh, so if people were curious about modern or um, had wanted to try some decks, you know, now is the time to get in there and give it a shot. Yeah, and the thing is, they didn't lose anything. Like, the three bannings this week, for the record, were Oko, uh, Micro Synth Lattice, and Mox Opal. Um, so, 
you know, that hurt a bunch of decks simultaneously. But, you know, hurts Karn the Great Creator as a spec. Um, uh, hurts Affinity decks <laughs> as a side side effect. Um, but this green-black deck was doing, like, beat Oko decks throughout the tournament and did well in the face of Oko. And then post these bannings has to be even better positioned. Oh, one has to expect the only reason I could see this being worse post bannings is the decks that get better without Mox Opal and Oko decks running around prey on the Yawgmoth deck. Potentially. Um, I mean, it's, it's a combo deck that relies on having specific creatures in play, but it did seem to have pretty like solid resiliency. <coughs> um so, I mean, it remains to be proven. To, to my mind, we've seen in the past, if we saw a deck like this spike a tournament, we wouldn't necessarily be... We'd be saying the same things. We'd be saying that you want to sell into the hype because you don't know where it's going to get to. You know, when Hardened Scales first showed up, we called it a meme deck and then, you know, got serious about it as it started putting up more more reasonable results. Um, but we're, we're a couple tournaments away. And the thing is that the rest of this month is pretty much dominated by Pioneer. I think one of the things that helped this card move is that it was a modern weekend. There was a modern GP in Austin and Star City Games um, was running their own modern event. But at the end of the month, we have a triple GP Pioneer weekend across the globe. So I think you're going to see the focus shift a bit. Yeah, this is one of the, the, the problems here is I don't think I'm ever going to come around to wanting to buy modern specs at this point like maybe maybe yagmoth isn't a flash in the pan maybe some other combo deck shows up in you know whatever couple days or you know a week or two that also looks exciting i'm still going to be like eh it's it's just it's not going to get better for modern is the thing like we're not expecting the popularity to to grow or the ability for that format to push card prices to grow it's it should just recede um so i just very unlikely I'm going to be advocating to buy those cards. And that's not to say that you shouldn't and that people won't make money on it. It's just not the place I want to be at this point. I mean, it has a risk profile that we're ascribing to it that it needs to prove its way out of. The When we start seeing weekly modern spikes on this list, then we'll be serious about modern specs. The, yep. <laughs> if we see Yawgmoth and then well, it takes six weeks and we see one more card go, then that's a different story. Um, as we've said in the past, the cards we're going to be most interested in are the ones that are definitely good in Pioneer and also see play in Modern and or EDH because that multi-format staple potential is where it's at. Yeah, Pioneer or EDH needs to be driving the discussion for me, not Modern. That's a, that's a oh, also. All right, moving right along. Yes Fractured and. Power Stone uh, went from, plain chase version going from 3 to 750. This was interesting because Saffron Olive from uh, MTG Goldfish flagged this and called it a buyout, uh, which kicked off a bit of a debate back and forth between he and I and other people about what exactly a buyout is. For the record, um, Saf's a great guy, and we've talked amiably for years. But uh, on this particular point, I'm a little concerned that sometimes when he is pointing you know, thousands of people in the direction of these events, we're, they're not getting the full story. Something like a Fractured Power Stone, A, uh, was not a targeted buyout. It's not the kind of thing that somebody's going out and trying to scoop up a thousand copies of. It could well be that it was mopped up, which is a different thing, where the market has drained the copies down to nearly nothing and somebody buys the last four reasonably priced copies or something. And then the market price doesn't move necessarily, but the posted 
TCG near min low moves. And then that shows up on all the price indexes and people go, oh, it's a big spike. But posted price, there's always somebody who is posting a ridiculous price. Like you do this all the time where you create a placeholder price and wait till (laughs) either the market catches up to it or um, just, you, you know, some of our members just use it as a way of tracking the prices on their specs. They'll put, you know, they buy a card at 20, they'll put it up at 80 on TCG. If everything below them got cleared out, then now the price is quote unquote 80, but it's not really because that person doesn't expect the market to respond at 80. They're just using it as placeholder. So it's important to differentiate between market pricing, what people have actually paid for a card and the current posted price, and also reflect on whether something was what I would call sold out versus bought out. Bought out, you know, Saf says he doesn't mean it in the way that we mean it. But I think that most people that are paying attention to MGG Finance do understand it that way, which is that a buyout is a is a organized, targeted strike on a card. It's people saying, okay, there's 100 or 120 copies of this left. We think people are going to need them next week. Let's buy them all up and hope that the market can't fill the gap back in and that people are going to be forced to buy it from us. The kind of thing we generally frown upon and tell people not to do because trying to lead the market instead of letting the market lead you, not that great of an idea. As opposed to sold out, which is a card runs out of inventory in the most natural way possible, and then the price moves. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it does. Um, all right. So uh, I, 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 I didn't I don't have a lot to add. I, I agree with your position here is it just it doesn't when I think of what a buyout is and what a buyout means, this isn't that. Why would somebody buy out Plane Chase 2012 Fractured Power Stones. Like, I just kind of, you know, whenever these types of discussions come up, I kind of go back to the, well, why would this happen? And I'm left grasping for an explanation. I'm left grasping for any sort of nefarious or intention. Yeah. Nefarious intention, I should say. It's not the kind of card you would, that even the people that fancy themselves buyout operatives would ever try. Um, Yeah. Because the the demand profile is not there. Um, And there's enough, like, stuff worth criticizing or looking to approve upon in MGG finance um, that, you know, it really doesn't need to have fake news built up around it to tear it down any further. No. Um, Lazav, the multifarious out of guilds of Ravnica, non foils going from two to five. This is on the back of elder giant hype. People thinking they're going to be able to fool around with Lazav and giant, the giants, Uro and Thaxos. I think I've got that name wrong. Naraxos, Nevisus, Naxus. The other one is called. Did I get there? Uh, I feel like you were homing in, but I'm not certain. Croxa (laughs) or Croxa, K R O X A, Titan of Death's Hunger. Um, Between that and Uro, people feel like they might be able to fool around with it. And the other thing is that Lazav shows up in Kethis Combo in Pioneer. Um, which is a deck I expect to see more of moving forward. So I like Lazav. Um, this might even still be a buy. I'd certainly be willing to look at foils. Um, haven't really looked up any stats on that, but Lazav does a very specific thing that seems abusable in the long term. So whether it gets there in standard or not, I'm not really too concerned. I probably want to own some of these. Well, uh, so it looks like foils. This did not load foils for me. Uh, six to seven bucks, but that ramps up really fast to ten. 
um, and then 20. So I don't know if this was bought up as well or um, if this is organic. If this is an organic ramp, that is a real fast run up to like $15, $20. Uh, I do find this combo fascinating. This sets you up to play Lazav on turn two, Uro on turn three, Uro dies. Uh, wait, where is my, I'm trying to keep track of my page here. Okay, so you, you Lazav on turn two, on turn three you cast Uro, you get your three life, draw a card, and put a land in the play, Uro dies, and then on turn four you you now have five mana, because uh, you play a land for that turn, you can copy Uro with Lazav, then uh, attack with him right away, because it costs you three to copy, you attack, you get your attack copy, um, which is pretty pretty solid because it sidesteps having to pay four for Uro and also sidesteps the uh, escape clause. And that because you attack with Lazav as Uro, you now get to put another land in from your hand in the play. So if you had a couple lands in your hand, you're now you have another three mana available. So on turn four, you're at six mana and you have three of them left open. Um, to, if they're all untapped, which is obviously you know it's not Oko anymore, but it's whatever else you want it to be. So I don't. The point being here, I don't, I'm kind of talking the play pattern out in my head to see what I think about it. And I don't hate this, um, especially with all these cards that are going to function well with escape. So, uh, it's curious. I, I guess the price would have to be right. I will tell you that at five or six dollars for foils, I'm okay with that. Non foils, I probably want like two or three if I can find them for that price. I might give it a shot for like two or three play sets. Uh, it's a bit of a stretch, but it's also the type of card that you could really, hit home if it if it works out yeah and, and again because it's multi-format and in different archetypes um you know it, it's looking like a pretty solid spec yeah um yeah finish things off in the top movers haunted dead foils at eldritch moon 225 to 750 i think that's the pioneer dredge deck shrine of the forsaken gods at a bfc battle of Zendikar. foils from 250 to about eight or nine um 200 gains <laughs> that's the Pioneer Green Ramp decks. And then Hidden Strings foils have bounced yo-yoed a bit. Um, this is kind of a one-trick pony. You need the Lotus Field decks to keep doing well and not uh, catch a ban. Um, but those foils going from a dollar to three fifty, hard to exit on those in any meaningful way, um, although buy less may eventually catch up. Shrine of the Forsaken Gods, I'm not too surprised to see on here. That was in a watchtower that I wrote two or three weeks ago, four weeks ago. Um, and I definitely flagged this as a possibility as being essentially one of the Tron lands of Pioneer. Hardly a surprise. You know, I, I didn't come up with that. Hardly a surprise to anybody that the card was doing a lot of work. Um, and with Urbor, or not Urbor, Ulamog and Worldbreaker having seen price movements as well. Um, clearly, there's some drain on the kind of green ramp angle uh hidden strings too fascinating um but that and haunted dead are both going to be a little tricky to capitalize on hidden strings especially um okay but yeah let's move on to segment two our cards to watch we've got a whole host of cards this week uh why don't you get us started probably worth pointing out that there was there in the same deck that's running four shrine of the forsaken gods and pioneer they're running four cavalier of thorns so it mm -hmm. is an established multi-format stable at this point <coughs> um Moving on to still, cards to still watch. haven't kicked that cough yet, huh? Starting to think it's something disastrous. <laughs> um, Winds of Abandon foils are back on my radar. 
Um, this is a card that I think we may have flagged last summer as something that would get there. I can't remember how long ago it was. Um, but Winds of Abandon is showing up in Modern. Um, it was on camera on the SCG tour this weekend and certainly has a decent following in EDH already. It's not quite a cyclonic rift, but it's in the ballpark of the kind of card that is likely to be a white staple for quite some time. Not quite a smothering tithe, but it comes out of a much more expensive box. <clears throat> and there's only like 40 listings for the foils on TCG, and the ramp is like relatively shallow for the first 30 or 40 co- uh, copies, like from 10 to 14. So I think it's a longer term hold. It's probably going to be 12, maybe 16 months. But it's kind of card where if you're only buying one for your personal EDH collection, you know, it's not going to get any cheaper at $10. Um, and you're likely, you know, hold it for a year or two, treat it well, and you'd probably be able to out it at 20 plus. So I think calling these at 10 to go to 18 within, say, 12 to 16 months is probably a pretty safe bet. I would say that your timeline is probably fair. Um, I think the card is definitely going to be solid in EDH for sure. That's the format that I'm most interested in this. Uh, those overload spells are great there. Um, this is a, a sen- you know essentially a, a six mana white uh, Plague Wind, which I am all for. Um, and we all know how well, well uh, the red artifact destruction Vandal Blast has done there as well. So this is sort of in that same category for me. Um, and it does give EDH players a chance to play targeted spot removal, which they definitely don't do enough, while also getting to fill a uh, sweeper uh, slot. So that's great too. The supply, like you said, is it is a shallow ramp up. Uh, I don't hate it. But I, I, I think it's a type of card you're probably in position where your timeline is likely accurate uh, 12 to 18 months, maybe even two years. Um, but I do suspect that these will be $20 in time. It's just a question of what that time frame is. One of the things is, you know, like the, the most prominent deck that was using this recently was probably Bant Snowblade um, that won an SCG Modern Classic this weekend. They had two copies of this in the sideboard. <laughs> there are three or four other decks running it that weren't running Oko. So the question remains, like, is the play pattern going to expand as people realize the card is more useful than they thought? Or, you know, is it going to stall out without the banned Oko decks in the format? Something tells me it's going to be all right because it doesn't seem to be, you know, Oko synergy based in any way, shape or form. Yeah, I, for the record, would imagine... I'm I'm talking about it as a essentially a strictly EDH card. If you get any modern traction, this helps significantly. Um, I I I am personally not trying not to attribute that to cards for the most part, but that's nothing but a plus. Yeah, and like Death and Taxes, Naya Midrange, Bant Soul Herder, a whole bunch of different decks have run this uh, here and there, mostly in sideboards. So, uh, like yeah. you said, you, you hang your hat on the EDH usage here and you hope that modern drives it a little harder. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I think it's solid. Cool. Cool beans. Cool beans. My first card for the week is, uh, I wanted to pick Niv-Mizzet, uh, and then real, cause I was browsing through the pioneer results and saw two Niv-Mizzet bring to light 
decks performing well and gritted my teeth and finally decided to look up Noob Mizzet and it was pretty well. I'm like, oh, this is really, really well positioned. And then I realized that James talked about this card two weeks ago. So I went elsewhere and found that Bring the Lights have a great ramp on them. Uh, right now, if you go look at Foil Bring to Lights on Battle for Zendikar, you will pay um, five to six bucks, probably six dollars, unless you catch one of the very few vendors with, it, with them at five for Foil Bring to Lights. But there are only 18 vendors on TCG right now. Uh, I think like two or three people have a playset, and that's about it. Uh, you're looking at probably four total playsets worth of cards before these are like 10, 11, 12 dollars. Uh, so that's not much at all. The Niv-Mizzet Bring the Light decks play four Bring the Light and three Niv-Mizzet. So they want more Bring the Lights than they do Niv-Mizzets. Um, it sees play in both Pioneer and Modern. So we're getting that Modern angle. Uh, even though I don't, I don't need it, it's great to have it. And additionally, it's not terribly unpopular in EDH either at about 3,500 decks, which is not staggering, but it's certainly a nice boost. So, you know... All these factors combined, I think that foil bring the lights at the $6 range or so are probably pretty well positioned to get to 10, probably 15. Yeah, the ramp's real steep. Bring the light is one of these decks, that, again, that people dismissed early, but now we're seeing similar versions of the archetype in Pioneer and Modern. As with the Soul Flayer deck, it only gets more pieces of the puzzle as time goes on. Every time it gets a, another multicolor card that might slot in and solve a problem for the deck, things get better and better. And again, you can't play it without the Nemizits. You can't play it without the Bring Delights because that's kind of the whole point. <coughs> so both of those cards seem well insulated. Still like my pick from a couple weeks ago on those Foil Mythics from War of the Spark. And I, I'm certain I called Bring Delight Foils like way back down the road. And they probably, I think they may have spiked briefly when this first showed up and then retreated. This time looks significantly more solid given where the ramp is at. Yeah, I, I'm positive that I wanted <laughs> to buy this card in the past, but the supply would have scared me off being from Battle for Zenicar. But now here we are, like five years later, and it is finally time. I can finally bring this card to light. Bring to light. <laughs> All right, my next pick's a kind of a weird one. I only have a confident seven on it, um, which is not super confident, but the math is there. At least I think so. Poison Tip Archer is out of, uh, not core, I put it in as core 20 here, but it's not. It's from Magic 2019. Um, and the foils are draining pretty hard on the back of it being more or less one of the most popular cards from that set in Commander. It is a 2-3 for two black green, has reach and death touch, and whenever another creature dies, each opponent loses one life. If you're playing the kind of deck that likes to cycle creatures in and out of the graveyard and drain the table, this is one of those, you know, uh, redundancy pieces that helps your deck get there. Um, I don't even think I knew this card existed before today, um, but you can pick up foils in and around the $3 range. I could easily see them on buy. The buy list support is pretty much already there for the car for the foils, and I could easily see it getting to, you know, four and a half, five, five and a half, maybe six dollars in the next year or so. And just being the kind of thing where if you picked up some cheap copies locally or online, you might be able to throw it into a future buy list order and, and get a decent return. I 
Also don't think I remember this card. Um, looking at this supply, I can't really argue with you. It's I can see the appeal of this card in Commander. Um, whenever another creature dies or loses a life, that's very abusable. If you set up a loop, you can just kill the table. And even if it's not, um, you know, a board wipe when there's 20 creatures on the board will do a lot of damage. So I get it. Uh, and 11 vendors, it is not many. Um, and those prices are pretty low, three to five for a buyless exit. Yeah, I'm I'm on board with that. I think this is a great little sneaky pick. Um, I wouldn't be looking to sell these individually, uh, but yeah, I think yeah. that well, you're and, likely and that, and, to get there. And that's a very valid point. I, I don't want to be buying $3 things and trying to sell them for five one by one, as I've said many times. <laughs> but I'm perfectly happy to have a handful of something like that or a double handful of something like that and just wait for buy list to catch up because nobody's cracking core 2019. So anything good out of those summer sets that um, is sitting around at a relatively low price and shows a strong demand curve is eventually going to force the buy list to respond. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. Okay. Uh, I am going to spin over here to my second pick of the week. Uh, it was going to be Soul Flare, but it was already in segment one. So what else is in Soul Flare? Uh, Zatalpa Primal Dawn. Um, I know we have talked, this has come up in conversation, but I feel confident actually talking about it as a pick now. Um, I'm looking at, you know, probably a little shorter, three to six months. Uh, I'm an eight on this. It's out of Ixalan. I like the foils at about $5. Um, I'm seeing for the rivals of Ixalan copies, there are 10 vendors. And they start at like four bucks, but there's only 10 people selling copies and there aren't that many. And that's for the rivals of Ixalan, like the pack foils. Uh, if we look over and at the promo, hmm? go ahead. I would say the promo pack copies, there's like four and the pre-release foils, there's 24 vendors again, around the four, four fifty range. So a little deeper here, uh, but still not that many copies. And definitely one of the probably the best card I'm going to say the best card you can play in Soul Flare is the best card you can Soul Flare out of your graveyard. So if the Soul Flare deck is going to cut it in Modern and Pi in Pioneer and Modern, uh, which I can't guarantee it, but if it is, I feel like this card is looking pretty solid because everyone's going to be putting four of them in that deck. So. Uh, given how short supply is, the fact that you should be able to sell play sets, I don't think you have to see a lot of success out of this archetype in Pioneer for this to move from five to ten bucks. Yeah, this is like this is another one trick pony card, um, because though the the card is an absolute beat stick and limited, um, the Soul Flayer deck is really the only place that wants it. Um, although, does it? How much EDH demand did you say it had? Um. This is, oh, I didn't actually say that I had it. Let me check. I guess I wasn't giving it a lot of credit, so I didn't pull it up. I would say it's modest. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing it's like 2,200 decks or something, but I could be wrong. <laughs> As a commander, uh, it's virtually none. <laughs> Come on. As a card, uh, 4,000. No, As so a commander, it's practically nothing, but as a card, it's 4,000 decks reported. So that's actually pretty solid. Um, yeah. So you can, you, can, you can argue that it's actually a multi-format card. I guess it's not really as much of a one-trick pony as I thought. Um, because there are other ways to abuse this. I mean, people run it in Gishath, Audric, uh, Zakama, etc. 
Um, it's good in Doran the Siege Tower because it's an eight, basically an 8-8 flying double strike vigilance trample, indestructible there. <laughs> and again, I don't think this, the Soul Flare decks are going anywhere. Um, so yeah, I can get with this. The, the promo pack thing is a bit of a drag, but we've seen that A, the promo pack stuff tends to command a higher price on at least Card Kingdom's buy list. And so overall, to go from 5 to 10, the combination of the demand profiles seems fine. Cool. Um, what's your third pick here? Call this a paired pick with your earlier pick on Goblin Rabble Master a couple weeks ago. The other card, other goblin that the red decks tend to run a whole bunch of copies of is Goblin Chain Whirler. Um, now, the thing with Chain Whirler is even though it's like top 20 card in the format, it was printed in Dominaria, so it's a little younger. There may be more of them lying around. Um, but Chonky Red, as it's being labeled by the Star City guys, um, you know, Todd Ener- uh, Todd Anderson has been arguing that it is the best deck in Pioneer. Tons of people running it on Magic Online. And they run the full complement of four Chain Whirler and four Rabble Master. Um, Chain Whirler foils can be had in and around $3. That doesn't sound right to me. Um People might not be foiling out their red deck. First of all, red decks may be foiled out less often, and people may not be foiling out their red decks yet in Pioneer. But eventually, people, if they have continue to have success with the red decks, will certainly think about foiling out their decks. And Chain Rolls at 3 to go to 8 to 10, say within a year, seems very solid for, say, 150% gains, minus fees, etc. Um, could easily end up being a solid buy list uh, out. Just taking a look here to see what the CK buy list looks like. Foils they are currently offering for promo pack 585, uh, pack foils at 260. So if you can see, if you see promo pack foils under $6, those are probably your first target. Um, and the Dominaria foils at 260 are relatively well insulated given the current conditions. Pre release foils are also, uh, you can exit via buy list at $5 plus credit. Um, so I like all of those numbers and, uh, I think it's not quite as good as Rabble Master pick, but pretty tightly, tightly linked. Those foil prices on TCG are definitely tempting. Um, I see one guy with one copy at three bucks, but he's starting around four, but that does ramp up pretty fast. And this doesn't feel like it would be awkward at eight to ten dollars at all uh and it is doing very well in the format and you're getting a bunch of cards that care about devotion and theros i don't know if any of them matter but it is an option hmm yeah i mean there's three dollar and fifty cent promo pre-release copies just sitting on tcg that are automatic arbitrage (laughs) well (laughs) yeah keep keep your finger Keep your fingers off those and leave them for the listeners. But uh, oh. I think this one's rock solid. <laughs> yep, I'm right there with you. All right, so we got right. a listener card here too, right? Yeah, so Discord member from the ProTrader Discord uh, forums, IDD, IDDQD. Interesting handle. Traverse the Olden Do you Wall recognize foils. it? Sorry? Do you recognize it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've just never said it aloud. You know, a lot of these people you kind of <laughs> memorize by their their uh, uh, profile graphic or whatever. <laughs> so it's always kind of weird the first time you have to say an online handle 
out, out loud with your actual mouth. Traverse the overwalled foils out of shadow over Innistrad, um, being called by this gentleman to go from twelve to twenty-five dollars within a year. It's in about three or three thousand or so EDH, EDH rec decks reported. Shows up in Niv Delight, Golgari midrange, uh, Death uh, Death Shadow uh, decks in Modern. It's an all over the place card that also has EDH chops and has done work before in multiple formats. Has and it's legal in Pioneer. So easy to believe that this will, especially I think once upon a time, does some of this work currently. And so once upon a time being banned is one of the things that makes uh, Traverse better wherever that happens. <coughs> and as a one mana tutor in a situation where you can generate delirium easily, I can easily re- imagine that somewhere down the road, cards like this and Deathrite Shaman just all of a sudden get better because there's some way in the early game to more reliably be filling up the graveyard. Um, the last couple sets gave us a couple of tools, and it's not 100% clear to me that Traverse is excellent in Pioneer this spring, but if it's not here, it could easily be another 6 to 12 months out, and eventually the combination of three-format play will push these foils up and out of range. Now... There is a little bit more risk on this, because if you think about it as a green EDH card, then it could show up in that green EDH foil set that's coming out in the summer. It could also show up in the Mystery Booster foils, because it's old enough now that that could be a thing. So there are a couple of reprint risks, but I'd put it at you know 10 to 15% possibility. This card is solid for sure. And, you know, we've obviously talked about it several times in the cast before. We're both fans. Pioneer has kind of given this card a new lease on life. Um, and it's, it's hitting on a several different archetypes. It's a little less popular in EDH than I would have anticipated. But overall, I think we've got a card here with a solid demand profile. I guess I'm, I'm not worried about this in the green EDH product. It just doesn't feel like it's the right fit for that. Uh, time could... Could tell me wrong, could prove me wrong here. Um, I would say the mystery packs are more of my concern than that are, but I mean, we've talked enough about that. That's not really a major deal. You'll have time to get out of them if it is an issue. So, uh, yeah, I think these are solid. I'm probably going to go look and see if there's any floating around in my store credit havens at the moment, actually. So, good job, IDDQD. Uh, enjoy the, uh, the, tr- the second trailer that came out today. <laughs> so, metagame week in review. Buzz through this quickly so we can get to Alexis. Um, the it was a double modern uh, event. SCG Modern Open and GP Austin um, both went off. They were kind of vying for about eh, four thousand views per three to four thousand views per on Twitch throughout the weekend. Um, the SCG Modern Open was won by Aaron Barich on a green black Yogmoth deck that was pretty kind of came out out of the blue for most people, I think. Like, it had been something Tom Ross was advocating for. Uh, Aaron thanked Tom for putting her on the deck. (coughs) And I think Aaron had been streaming it for a week or two um, prior to the event. So, you know, for people that were paying attention, it it wasn't as much of a surprise. But this deck runs Four Birds of Paradise, a Blood Artist, a Cavalier of Night, Four Giralf's Messenger. I brought a couple of those foils as I saw this uh, doing well on camera. 
um, since they're pretty low supply as well. One Noble Hierarch, four Strangle Root Geist, four Wall of Roots, four Yogmoth, four Young Wolf, four Quarter Calling, four Eldritch Evolution, and Once Upon a Time. It's that combination of 12 green spells between Cord, Eldritch, and Once Upon a Time that really lets them, like, adds the redundancy that lets them get to the combo faster here. That for sure, that is a lot of creature tutoring that they have working here. Um, Eldritch Evolution especially is pretty tasty in here because you have Young Wolf and Strangleroot and Gralfs that all get to come back. Um, so you were getting, you're getting kind of an additional body on those. Um, and then Yogmoth being able to put minus one, minus one counters on those, right? That's how that works. Uh, yeah, like you can sacrifice like your young wolf to put a counter on your Grolf's messenger type of thing. Do some f- fancy stuff. Uh, yeah, some fun, some fun functions here. Um, Eldritch Evolution and Moderns or in Pioneer certainly making me wonder if there's room there for that. So the rest of this top eight, uh, Snowbant Control, which has now been uh, potentially neutered. I'm happy to have sold uh, a bunch of Ice Fang Quaddles, because I think the card is good and probably does find another home. Um, but, you know, Oko decks were certainly driving primary usage in Modern. Um, so it's unclear whether this deck just keeps rolling without Oko or if it falls to the wayside. Um, Green Devotion uh, was in third place in the hands of Christopher Gooch. Um, This was actually a pretty cool deck, too. This one uh, was running a whole bunch of stuff I didn't expect to see. (coughs) They had the Karn, the Great Creator, into Microsynth Lattice combo. Four Ley Lines of Abundance and four Oath of Nyssa. So I'm a little sad that they got rid of Lattice because had this deck kept rolling along... Um, Leyline of, of Abundance and Oath of Nyssa, if you believe in modern specs, that might have been the comeback for both of those, which people may or may not have been caught holding based on what happened in uh, Pioneer earlier this fall. Um, it was also running things like Birds of Paradise, Burning Tree Emissary, Devoted Druid, Genesis Hydra, three of three of in the deck, two Land of War Tribe, which is a Modern Horizons card I don't think anybody saw coming. That's the Elf for three green, the Taps for three green. <clears throat> Four Noble Hierarch, a Questing Beast, and a Scavenging Ooze. Um, definitely, I think, the first time I've noted that deck. They also ran four Nykthos, of course. The um, the removal of Mycosynth Lattice is a curious one. Uh, when that started showing up in Modern in some reasonable amount, I, pretty, I was like, okay, that's probably going to go because it's colorless. You can put it anywhere. Karn's pretty much good enough as it is. It requires one sideboard slot and you have a combo to lock people out. So I, I didn't expect it to last forever, but it, it, it lasted a while longer than I thought. And then after it got banned this week, somebody on Twitter pointed out that like, how is this play pattern all that different from, from scape shift? Like you have to cast Karn for four mana and then you can tutor the Mycosynth immediately, but you you can you cast Karn for four, you can tutor the Mycosynth. You have to keep you either have to have ten mana that turn, or you have to keep Karn around long enough through your next turn after he's been gone down the three loyalty. And then you have to resolve the Mycosynth lattice, and then you probably win. Right? Like it's not guaranteed, but you probably win with that combo. But that's it's surprising with how much work it is to actually put that together that it got banned when it doesn't really seem that much more ridiculous than other 
combo strategies in the format. I guess it's really just comes down to the fact that you can put it pretty much anywhere, but uh, well, whatever. Um, the, the, I guess the major story here is that we can look at a couple of these decks and think they're interesting, but the entire format is so dramatically different today. I mean, four Urza Oko decks alone, uh, and then there's a Snow Bant control deck in here too. That was, um, which was also Urza. So five out of the eight yeah, to- of the top eight were yeah. Urza, were o- either Urza Oko or Oko Snowblade. <clears throat> so the other deck to look at then is the Amulet Titan deck. You know, these, these decks have never really gone away in modern um, and are reinvigorated by having access to four once upon a time. Um, and they also have Field of the Dead um, coming out of last summer. And they get to run four Castle Garen Brig. So the deck's only getting better. And I would, you know, I considered calling movement on Primeval Titan um, as something people should be looking at. Uh, and I think that's probably still true. Over in the other uh, GP, GP Austin. They had 801 players. The SCG event was 382. That's a decent showing. 800 players for a modern GP. Certainly not a peak, but certainly better than the standard GPs that were, ca- that were giving people cause for concern. Um, Simic Ramp Field of the Dead was the winner there, uh, which uses Oko Thief of Crowns. I, I, unclear whether that deck survives without Oko. Urza Oko was in second, then Jund, then another Urza Oko, then Teamer Aggro. Um, which is a bit of a dark horse. Uh, this one was running. Uh, this is Arbor Elves, Birds of Paradise, Bloodbraid Elf, Bone Crusher Giants, Glorybringers, P.N. Kieran Nalar, Questing Beast, and Tireless Tracker, with Blood Moon's main, three Chandra Torture Defiance, four Karn the Great Creator, four Oko Thief of Crowns, and Utopia Sprawl. So without the four Okos and the four Karns to give this deck extra angles, I don't know if it survives. <laughs> This guy just set out to play as many band cards as he could. Like, I'm going to get Oko and Michael Synthlatis going this week because I don't, I don't it, think I get to play him on Monday. It's a good thing he top-baited to cover his losses. Yeah, basically. Uh, so I'm not I'm not ready to comment on Modern. We don't, we're not familiar enough with what the format's going to look like. Um, you know, we'll get back to this in a couple of weeks when we see additional Modern results. Uh, probably time to get over here and get Alexis in the hot seat. All right, let's get started here on segment four, topic of the week. We are joined by the gracious Alexis Jansen, former Wizards of the Coast employee, the very first great designer search, which was, if you can believe it, I can't, 13 years ago, and the lead Dragon's Maze designer. Uh, Alexis, it is a pleasure to have you. Thanks for coming on this week. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much, Travis. So... We've got this big set of Theros in front of us, and you know a thing or two about magic cards. Uh, so you're going to tell us with extraordinary insight why all of the cards we want to be good aren't. <laughs> and, but I mean, I think we're going to do something a little different this time. The Normally when we're talking to pros and doing our set review, which I think we'll probably still pull together for next week... Um, we make our lists of, you know, best cards for standard, for pioneer, for modern. Then the pro tears us down and says, nope, that's not going to be good enough or what you're missing this or whatever. Given, you know, Alexis's background, I think that what we're probably more interested in is getting a sense of, you know, what design space here is interesting to you that you kind of feel like it opens magic up in new directions. What are some cards that you think are unique enough or um, hard to parse in a way that might make them underrated? Um, for standard and or pioneer and you know to a lesser degree modern in edh and you know what do you you think it indicates about where magic design is headed in in 2020 um 
a period that I think a lot of people are concerned will be just as pushed as it has been for the last nine months or so. Yeah, I mean, I can obviously do my best. Um, the most interesting thing to point out is uh, most designer-type insights are going to be very limited and standard-focused generally, because that's what 98% of the effort is spent towards. But given that Pioneer is a new format and they're trying to push the power level right now, any insights for standard are basically automatically relevant for Pioneer until proven otherwise. So hopefully we'll be able to hit some stuff that, that will help people find interesting uh, specs to go after. Sure. So, I mean, we'll leave the ball in your court. Is, is there anything as you were going through the set that jumped out at you as particularly interesting new design space? Uh, new design space? Uh, not that there was a couple of, of specific things that jumped out at me, but they're not really necessarily, they didn't really point me in any direction that said, look, this is, this is actually going to be, you know, interesting to spec on. It was more like, oh, Limit is doing a couple interesting things with its commons and uncommons that aren't necessarily going to be relevant for this podcast. Um, the one thing I did notice that I want to start out with, though, is that um, I did notice that there is a surprising amount of hate for the escape card, like hate for the graveyard in this set, which, sure. um, which tells me Aren't, like, it does, I'm not sure what how to read that. There's a couple ways we can read that. Um, usually recursion is historically better than it looks. R&D is always screwing up with its recursion cards. Dredge was way more powerful than it looked. Flashback was good, you know, so on and so forth. Um, R&D knows that, and R&D is pushing the envelope this time. So it's, like, it's almost like R&D kind of got ahead of itself and said, we're just going to put escape valves all over the place, and if, if, if escape... <laughs> escape valves. Um, uh, <laughs> if escape proves to be too powerful, then there's going to be lots of options for players to go to. Um, what that tells me, the first thing that I walk away with that is, if you see a, if you see an out on a standard or pioneer card, take it. If it's an escape related card, like because the metagame is going to have lots of tools to adjust, and a card that's good today might not be good in two weeks. Don't don't wait for it to you know overshoot its mark. Yeah, um, it, it leaves you feeling like the the tools to respond to a great escape deck or a, a deck that attempts to abuse the graveyard are already in place, so that deck better have a backup plan. Right, exactly. Like, like just look, I mean, just the first couple things that pop out in my mind are, are look at Soul Guide Lantern. This is an uncommon that is arguably better than Relic of Progenitus, which saw modern play. Um, and it just completely hoses a graveyard-based deck if that's what you want. If you need that tool, it's right there. It's really good. It does exactly what you want at a ridiculously low rate. Um, there's other examples like that, but a lot of cards just incidentally hose the graveyard, like things like um, Clothies, which is also just a really good card on its own, just incidentally hoses your opponent's graveyard at the same time, right? So it's it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to make these escape cards work. That's my first thought. Yeah, so like Cl Clothis is strikes me as a kind of a scavenging ooze type card where it has incidental graveyard hate, but also fills a role in like some kind of mid-rangey deck. <coughs> There's also uh, Kunaros, Hound of Athreos, the one white black 3-3, three, three, Vigilance, Menace, Lifelink, creatures card, creature cards and graveyards can't enter the battlefield, players can't cast spells from graveyards. I mean, those are some, as you said, multiple escape spells. Right. Um, the other thing I noticed as I was looking, because I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, is escape good, right? Because that's kind of like the big question in everyone's mind, is escape good? Um, I spent a lot of time looking at graveyard filling and other ways to enable escape, and it's really not in the set. It's not there. There's a couple cards, and, and I want to talk about one specifically, but 
generally speaking, the tools to fill your graveyard are going to come from older sets or newer sets that come later down the line. So if it doesn't, like, it's going to be really hard to make escape work is what I'm, is what I'm kind of getting at. They didn't give a whole lot of new tools we didn't already have access to. Um, and that kind of brings at... me... What was that? Sorry. Sorry. When we're looking at the escape cards, um, did anything jump out at you as this is the, the flagship escape card that's especially pushed? Like, is it Ox of Agonos? I think I think Ox. I think I mean somebody's gonna prove me wrong on this, and and I'm gonna you know eat my words. But I think eight escape is just just way too high. It's just how how do you do this? I mean, if you're doing eight escape, it means you're playing dedicated mill cards like Merfolk Secret Keeper and Ashiok and things like that in order to make it work. But what deck runs these defensive blue cards with its aggressive red hand refilling card? Right? Like, what's that deck? I mean, the most obvious slot I can think of is that Pioneer uh, Phoenix might be interested in this card. Yeah, it, it's very possible. But even, another thing to point out, um, another thing that makes me worried about escape cards from a speculation standpoint is because of the cost on the escape cards, you're, you're not going to run four ofs of any of these. There's no way you run four oxes. Like, you run two, maybe three right? Like, I, I can't see that being a four of. So that just takes the no- takes things down just another notch. Because it could have the same problem as Dig Through Time and Treasure Cruise currently have in Pioneer, where they're not run as four ofs for the most part. In Phoenix, you still run four Treasure Cruise, I believe. I think I played against that last Friday. You do. You um, do. But in most other instances, as you said, you can't, even if you can reliably cast one of those cards once, you probably can't right. do it twice. And I played, I played a lot of Phoenix in Pioneer, and Getting the first treasure cruise off isn't too difficult, but the second one's a lot of work. And the ox is harder than treasure cruise. It's two mana and eight cards, not one mana and seven cards, and you can't pay mana for the difference either. So, yeah, I guess like you'll... if you have four treasure cruises already in the deck, you might fit an ox or two in, or maybe you shave a treasure cruise and put two oxes in. I don't know. It doesn't seem like a card that really changes things very much here in terms of just numbers. Like the card might be really good, but it's not going to be a four of probably. And if we're looking at something like Elspeth Sun's Nemesis. Yeah, that's um, the one that jumped out at me in terms of power level. I can easily see it posting up in some form of a control deck during its tenure in standard. Um, doesn't seem high impact enough for mo- like modern or pioneer, despite the fact that four cards is not that big of a cost. Um, although four is, you know, in modern where you do have access to the Fetchlands, etc. Does, does Elspeth strike you as playable? I'm not really a modern aficionado. Um, it strikes me as a card that I could definitely see hitting hitting the ground running in Pioneer. It's it's not like I compare it to History of Banalia, but it has so much more flexibility than History of Banalia, and all you're doing is paying one more mana for that flexibility up front, and then after that, it's all gravy, right? So, like, I don't know. I don't know if the shell is there for it, but if there's a control deck that wants to play a double white card, or if there's a really aggressive deck that would have played History of Benalia, this might just slot right into it. It's, it's a pity that it makes human soldier tokens instead of knight tokens. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> because that would have been nice in that instance. Um, so what about something like Nyx Bloom Ancient? This no. was, a lot of people, I think, interpreted this card as being hit over the head <laughs> with the bluntest possible object from a commander I, perspective. I, 
I likened Nick's Bloom Agent to, whoops, it's uh, 4.30 on Friday afternoon. We're supposed to turn the set in by the end of the day, and we forgot our green EDH mythic. <laughs> quick, quick, we need to come up with a green EDH card in the last 20 minutes of the workday. What do we do? This is what you get. Well, that was that was my question, was, Alex, Alexis, um, in your experience, how does a card like this make it out into the wild? Is this about selling, selling packs? It's, it looks totally to me like just a random cool expensive edh card that somebody in r&d or maybe somebody not in r&d somebody in the building came up with this card submitted it for a hole um got it was liked it got dropped in and then it just pulled good numbers in the rare pulls and was just left in and it doesn't feel like a it doesn't feel like a last minute card to me it feels like a this is a card that could go in any set and it just happened to feel like it fit into this set more than your average set because it feels like an enchantment creature or for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And so it made it in, it stayed in, and it got printed. It's it's the kind of it doesn't really tell me anything about the overall set design. It's just a it's just a really powerful EDH card. But for, for the benefit of for the benefit of our else. listeners, can you explain to them about internal rare pulls? Absolutely. Well I can I can talk about both things. So for whenever a set is in design, it usually goes through two or three phases where the designers and or developers knock a bunch of cards out and send out an email to anybody interested saying, you know, fill these holes, send us some rares, we're going to pick from them. And they get in a room and they look through all the emails and they pick the coolest cards and they stick them in the set. Then similarly, pretty much the same mailing list, they send out an email saying, here is a rare poll, go through and rate all the rares. And there's this like website you log into and you click click through it and each rare it says, rate this from 1 to 10 and put any notes in. And you just do that for every rare and mythic in the set. And it aggregates all those numbers together and tells the set leads, like, how do people feel about the cards in this set? Are, are, they, are they splashy enough? And um, a lot of times cards will just pull good numbers there for nothing to do with the set itself. It's just this is a really cool card and this card needs to see print. And so that card will eventually see print. It might not see print in that set, but it's going to see print at some point. Uh, does, do you feel like Nick's Bloom Ancient is lazy? Is that, a, is that a word you would feel comfortable ascribing to this? I, I don't like ascribing lazy to it. it. It's definitely, like, yeah, it's not necessarily a, like a clever design. It doesn't do anything that makes you go, wow, whoever came up this with clever and had, had some great idea, but like, that doesn't matter. It's it's a sure. it's a cool card. It goes somewhere slightly different than similar cards, and that's kind of that's kind of the hallmark of a good design. Honestly, is if you look at it and go, oh well, that's lazy or simple or whatever. But like no one else has done it yet, right? So, I, I guess. Well, and, and and to my mind, both from a financial perspective and a player's perspective, what's more relevant in the end is does this thing get banned in Commander? Because <laughs> right. if it gets banned in Commander, then you can toss whatever epithets you want at it on the basis that it's been, you know, printed into oblivion and then no one can play with it. Right. The, sorry, go ahead, Alexis. I was just going to say, this doesn't feel like a ban-worthy card. Like, if you're at the point where you're dropping this, the game has progressed pretty far or you've cheated it out and the card that cheated it out is the one that should be considered for banning. Like, by the time you play this card, you're just going to do bonkers things, but the game has progressed to the point where everyone should be doing bonkers things. So, I don't know, it doesn't feel like that kind of card to me. Sure, and it's not like it has hexproof or or any kind of recursive ability built in. Uh, right. I, I will I will take the opposite tack of you two. I think this card is going to get banned. Uh, 
any permanent three times as much. If if you tap every source of mana you have to play this card, you have to fade one turn of removal and then you win the game, most likely. Uh, and if you play it with any untapped source of mana, it gets nuts pretty fast. Um, especially if you set up for it. Like, okay, I'm going to play this with like my Gaia's Cradle open or with enough mana to activate this thing that untaps my lands or whatever. Uh, I don't know. This seems so potent that it w- I would be surprised if it didn't. Right, but like there. at the stage you're playing this, you're, what is it, seven, eight mana? It's seven. It's, it's seven mana? Like, that's what happens in EDH when people start getting to seven mana is they start playing haymakers and having to wait a turn. And if they survive, they w- they have a chance at winning the game. That's just if that's the kind of game you play with EDH. Like not everyone plays EDH that way, obviously. But like if you're and, playing, and, and an argument can be made that it's not that different than Crater Hoof in that regard. Right. It's a, that's another good example. That card takes a different type of setup, but it, it's similar in concept. At the at the other side of that, you've got Primeval Titan, right? It's six mana. And they thought that was too good. True. It's fair. Uh, it, it's a very different effect. Like, it lets you get... It doesn't just make mana. It lets you get whatever ridiculous lands you want to get. But yeah, you I, might I, be right. I'm thinking of it from just, like, a Haymaker-type card. Like, that card does a lot of work. It's on turn six. It's not super early. Um, but it warped games once it showed up. And really, I think the problem with Primeval Titan wasn't the first time you cast it. It was the nth time it got reanimated, cloned, and whatever. And people are going to be fighting over Nixbloom Ancient just like they fight fought over Primeval Titan because you can steal your opponents or clone your opponents, and then maybe you can win the game on the spot with that type of thing. Um, it just seems like such a glut of resources so fast. Uh, but it, we've, we've derailed this conversation enough now. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, from a financial perspective, I'm not... I'm not, I don't know where the entry point would be on the card because it's going to, it's starting high. Um, Extended arts are going to be high. And if it's as good as it looks, then you're hoping that it's great, but not paradox engine level great and doesn't catch a ban. So it's, uh, it's definitely carrying a pretty strong risk profile and it's not clear where the entry point is. From you're right, you're absolutely right. And from a financial perspective, I would never buy this card if I didn't expect to be out of it within three to six months. So, how about Eidolon, Eidolon of Obstruction? This is the first card that, to my knowledge, that uh, taxes the loyalty abilities of planeswalkers. Specifically, says loyalty abilities of planeswalkers. Your opponent's control costs one more to activate. Two one first strike, one and a white. Um, were you at all surprised to see this being dropped into a year where we've gotten push planeswalkers all year, Alexis? Uh, surprised might not be the right word, but it's definitely it's definitely a unique ability. Um, it's very much kind of coming. I mean, I don't know, maybe not the tail end, but it's definitely coming after War of the Spark has had some time to kind of do some damage, know, do its thing. Like, yeah, spark. it's very clearly, very clearly a card. So one of the things Wizards likes to do is throw new tools into a set to either deal with or uh, help, depending on what you're talking about, strategies from about a year ago. And this is clearly what's going on here. Um, this card isn't this card isn't here to stop Elspeth. This card is here to stop you know the Teferi plus Narset plus whatever deck that's like you know I'm going to hide behind three Planeswalkers and activate them every turn. Um, but that being said, I'm not sure it does that like if you're the kind of player who's hiding behind three planeswalkers that extra mana is annoying but it's not going to stop you from doing the thing right i don't know um 
Were you the sub- question whether this card is good is going to be based on whether there's a deck to put around it. It's not. It's not going to be a card you can just drop into any any shell and like screw with your opponents, right? Were you surprised at how late this came? I remember. Uh, I think it was. I mean, the the example that I remember is fairies, and they didn't print the answers to fairies until what was it like a couple sets later it was like the core set or something it was great sable stag so fairies had a bunch of time to run around uncontested and then they had something else i don't remember what the more slightly more modern version yeah, was the, i think the intended answer to fairies was volcanic fallout in yeah conflux yeah um but that didn't do it uh, right exactly <laughs> yeah, they didn't cut it. and then i i want to say i want to say it was the glaring spotlight was aiming for the hexproof creatures but that was also too late and i remember reading an article after all this stuff about how they're like okay we're gonna start putting the answers to these things in like the same set or even before the yep. cards come out so that you don't have to go through months at a time with no answers. And this is a weird card to see a year after War of the Spark. Like if you were worried about War of the Spark possibly maybe putting Planeswalkers too far, wouldn't you have put this in way earlier? Yeah, you'd think that. I mean, I guess maybe Elder Spell was intended to be the inset kind of card to stop the theoretical all Planeswalkers deck, and this is kind of an, just another attempt at it. Um I do, I do remember what you're talking about. I do remember the article where they said we're going to start doing these things earlier. We're not going to wait for them. It doesn't mean that they won't do that ever. It just means yeah. they're thinking about it ahead of time, I think. Yeah. Um, which, again, kind of goes back to the whole, like, look at all the anti-escape stuff in this set. So it's clear that they're thinking about these things a little bit earlier now. Um, I forgot about the other spell. I don't know, if that, tells, cool I don't know if that Yeah. I don't know what that tells us about this card and whether or not it's, you know, worth <laughs> looking at. Like, the fact that this showed up you know, multiple sets later, does that mean that Wizards decided that they really did need an answer, and in that case, maybe it's better than it looks? Because it doesn't look that great to me unless you're already doing a really aggressive white strategy. Which, so, side note, I think might actually be a thing in this set, but it's not clear to me yet. So so here's a question for you, um, because we speculate on, on this all the time, but we never have real data. Um, at, what is the, the date stamp that you think is the latest that card could have been added to this card file and still made it to press. Oh jeez, I did this. I did this math the other day, and I don't have my notes with me. Um, I think you you might have actually asked me this question. I should look through my, my notes. Um, <laughs> like just roughly speaking, are we talking three months, nine months, two years? It's not two years. It's it's. I feel it's somewhere in the six to nine month before before print release date is kind of like the last there's there's like a final so it depends on what the question is like specifically asking like there's a six to nine month like hard cutoff date for any changes at all but this card would have like that's like can you change a number like can i make a card cost two instead of three or can i make a card have a higher toughness this card you can't introduce a whole new card whole cloth that late because mm-hmm. you know at that point you're already in translation and 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 it, it costs a lot of there's a lot of moving parts that are you'd have to have an emergency situation basically and if you have an emergency situation you fix it by making the card cost a lot of mana you don't fix it by putting a whole new uh you know mm-hmm. whole new poser in um, oh, we so what this... you're saying so what we you're have... saying then re- realistically speaking is that in all likelihood this card was committed to this card file before War of the Spark had ever been released. Because um, that was, was May, of, of May of 2019. May of 2019. Um, 
Yes, so, yes. No, there's. Yeah, I, I'm not 100 percent sure on the exact timeline, but I guarantee that this card had to be designed and committed to maybe a strong term, but definitely like we're likely to print this card had to be done before War of the Spark. They'd ever seen the results of War of the Spark in in you know players' hands. Hmm. So, yeah. um, so it's not it's not like post Oko being released in October. No, absolutely not. Slid- There's no way this right, is an answer right, to right. Oko. Okay. I mean, it might be an answer. It might be an answer to Oko in the sense that they might have <laughs> discovered in internal testing that it was better than they thought it was. You know, a little bit later than, but then they would have. That's the kind of thing I would expect them to go back to the. You, know, you can go back and change a plus one to a minus one a lot easier than other changes, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on that. Can. On that. Wait. On that topic. <laughs> well, you can change on a plus one to a minus one really easily. Our friend Skull Clamp <laughs> remembers that <laughs> plus one to a minus one. <laughs> so. On the, on the topic of Oko, Alexis, when you look at that card, are you surprised it made it out, out the doors? Can you comment on how you think that gets through design development and playtesting and no one realizes it's one of the most busted Planeswalkers of all time? That, that one's harder for me because it's it's definitely more of a what they call play design these days, a development issue. Like design Design would never have handed off anything, would never have worried about that, if that makes any sense. They would have said, we're going to make a food-based Planeswalker here's kind of what we think it's going to do, development, have fun. Because development, again, now plane design, is is generally responsible for most planeswalker designs beyond simply, like, broad ideas of what they should be doing. Um, so they, yeah, I mean, how did they let that out is a good question. Um, I don't actually have a great answer to that, other than, you know, they, they knew they were pushing, they were going to, they if intentionally said, we're pushing the envelope. Um, so, I suspect that they just overshot and they said, we're going to push really hard and we're going to have to ban something. We don't know what it is. And well, it was Oko. By God, they hit their target. Yep. I, I, in, in, in your experience, Alexis, sorry, this is a follow-up. Is the pushing of a card, does that originate at the design level? Like, do you push it as far as you think you can take it and then rely on play design to dial it back as necessary? Or do you try to table the what you think the balanced version of the card is, and then their testing may lead it in either direction. Um, the, the truth is actually much closer to the first. Design tends to submit cards at whatever a level of aggressive costing they think they can get away with, because you want the players to play with it, both in limited and you know whatever else testing. You want people to get excited, and it's a lot easier for someone to get excited about something and then tone it back a little bit than it is for nobody to ever look at a card and then wonder, well, is the card interesting at a higher cost or is nobody interested in the card at all because the card itself is boring right so from a design perspective you you undercost things very regularly uh like from a development standpoint it's sorry i i, I lost my train of thought there um i think design should start handing over card files with every number on the card figured out except the monocost so just hand them a right. card file with blank monocost and tell play design to just price everything <laughs> uh i remember what i was gonna say yeah that, and and you 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 kind of covered it generally the first thing de- development does and again this is kind of probably changed by now because it's been many years since i've been part of this but one of the first things development does is when it, the hand the file gets costed or sorry when the file gets handed over as they go through and like recost everything to try and like what do i think this card should cost to make it balanced in standard and limited and is that does that result in a high percentage of change? Um, it it does result in a lot of like plus ones, minus ones, that kind of stuff. It's not usually. Sure. It's rare that 
it's rare that design is super far off because one of one of the habits of designers, and, and I, I've been in the pit when this happens, is Mark Rosewater will just lean over and go, hey, uh, you know, Mike Turian, what, what, what would you cost this card at? And then he'll put it in the file at, at that cost. Hmm. Um, uh, the one thing to keep in mind, though, is that like cards like Oko, since we're talking about it anyways, like R&D will never tell you this, but there has regularly been multiple times where they've met and said, okay, well, how can we juice this set? And you know what cards, what cards are exciting already? And therefore, if we you know juice them just a little bit, we're we're certain that they're going to sell packs and that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Arnie will never admit to that, but they do it. They they absolutely do it. It's nice. It's nice to have that on the record. That was going to be um, kind of my question. Was we know you know Oko is obviously pushed to an extent that like really a magic card hasn't been pushed before. Um, and I'm wondering if you ever saw glimpses of source of, of if you ever saw glimpses of the source of that pushing, either being the absolute top of Wizards or even Hasbro. Like when you were there, that, was it ever coming down from the real high up? That I don't. That I don't have any level of insight into. Um, but I did. I did multiple times hear conversations. Let me give you an example. Um, Mike Turian, who I don't, I don't know if he works at Wizards anymore, um, but he was the lead of uh, Morning Tide, and uh, Morning. Make, make sure I'm correct here. Morning Tide had uh, Bitter Blossom in it, if I remember correctly. Sounds roughly um, accurate. And I think some others that maybe it was Conflux had Path to Exile. Those two, those two cards were specific cards that Mike Turian added. And and at the time he added them, he specifically said, "I'm adding these cards because I want my set to sell." <laughs> if that makes any sense. Um, and they're very pushed cards. They're very obviously pushed cards. Um, now, so, th- whether that's happening in, at the higher level, at the executive level, like I'll ask you, like look at everything else Wizards is doing in the last six months, and you tell me, do you think the executives are looking for other ways to sell things? Right? It, well, <laughs> we do, and we talk about it on the cast. But I've, neither of us work at Wizards, which is why I wanted to ask you if you right. ever caught wind of that. So speaking of push cards in the set that look like they're designed to sell packs, how about Underworld Breach, the new Yawgmoth's Will in red? Ah, that card is that card is scary for for eternal formats. Um, I don't know what else to say about that. I'm surprised that that card sees, is seeing print. Like it, it almost looks like a eternal plant. Like somebody in in R and D said, "What card can we do that's going to speak to the older format players that'll get them to buy?" packs because that's another thing you try to have one or two cards here and there that that kind of spice things up i mean it's, it's the kind of card that timmy looks at and goes whoa and spike is like oh yeah i got the list for this i, I mean it's clearly a, it's clearly a spike jenny overlap right like you've got all sorts of combo type potential built into it but sure it's funny when i look at it because i can remember being a much worse player uh, or maybe not worse, a less educated player, because I'm still terrible, and looking at it and going, but wait, I have to sacrifice it at the end of my turn? Like, I don't understand. Well, how good is this supposed to be? Th- this is clearly a quote-unquote fixed Yawgmoth's will. Are there cards that were... Like, this is the first time I remember seeing a fixed Yawgmoth's will. So was that something that people acknowledged, but they couldn't figure out how to do correctly or something like that? Like, why did it take so long to get the fixed will when we were getting all the other versions fixed for so long? I'm not sure, like... Yawgmoth's will was never... 
like Yawgmoth's will is only as broken as the cards around it. It's it's an interesting card. Like if you've ever drafted a cube with the Yawgmoth's will in it, and you're not drafting Storm, the card's terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's interesting that they even tried to fix it because like what's the? It's one of those cards where you're like, what's the upside here versus the downside? And this is this is a conversation I've had many times in R and D. Like if this card works you're going to have a combo deck that's going to feel super broken and no one's going to enjoy playing against <laughs> yeah. it. And if it doesn't work, you have a quarter rare. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. <laughs> um, so I'm surprised they printed this card at all. But so, like, it makes me wonder, like, what, what are they thinking here? Okay. Those all, it's all fair. It's all fair. I mean, I agree with that assessment completely. This, this, does this slot into Phoenix and Pioneer? I mean, you're, you're probably asking the wrong person, but it doesn't... F- feel like it quite fits but maybe maybe because the problem is it's not an instant or a sorcery so you have you have very limited slots for things that don't trigger phoenix right but at the moment where you could be casting treasure cruise is it better to underworld breach and cast a bunch of stuff out of the yard instead i mean maybe but in my general experience you cast treasure cruise and then follow it up with one or with two other instant hands or sorceries and you, your phoenix is back and you've spent all your mana or you've spent all but one mana so like spending two mana yeah, yeah. spending two mana on a non-instant non-sorcery is a big ask for that deck i think mm-hmm. and, it, and if it's not there i don't know where it goes <clears throat> as yeah, far yeah. back as like i don't know what the deck is for it in modern like something like ad nauseum i have no idea yeah I think <clears throat> if, if it breaks it's going to be with something similar to the kethis engine where you, you're recursing cursing recursing moxes out of the graveyard over and over somehow and and each time you sure. cast it somehow you get four more cards so you can do it again mm-hmm. why won't they print wrath of god <laughs> i mean they they did kind of in this set it's um yeah but if you out of the sky if you were going to reprint wrath of god why wouldn't you put it in the set with gods, <laughs> oh, they—they're never—they're um, never going to reprint Wrath of that, the, Wrath of God. One, they don't like the idea of referring to a singular god, and especially a card that implies that it's referring to the singular god of of, of Christian faith, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. But two, that card says you know creatures can't be regenerated, and that's just not a thing. Oh, it's never going to show up on a, on a standard card. I mean, the the no religious connotation. It's clearly basically why that card got axed. But I'm like, okay, but you printed a card very similar to it, and why now in the one set you could get away with printing a card named you know referencing God? Would you not print it? But the regenerate thing, I forgot about that. Yeah, no, the regenerate well, thing I mean, is the main reason. Well, I mean, I figured that they should have got cute here and just called it Wrath of Heliod, and it would have been a cute little nod. Mm-hmm. Wrath. Shatter, Shatter the Sky is not particularly resonant. Wrath of Gods. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, how about sagas, Alexis? Is that something that popped up in design after your time at Wizards? Uh, let's see. So, sagas were Dominaria. I was in the building when Dominaria was started, but I was not when it was released so and i wasn't in r&d and i was very busy with other things at, at that you know point in time i was overwhelmed with arena you know arena 60 hour work weeks but um yeah mild shot there uh so i don't i don't know a whole, i wasn't there for sagas i wasn't like ingrained in it i think they're really cool i think they were kind of the the fire starter for wizards thinking oh we can actually just do things with frames and that's okay and nobody nobody's going to stop us we can start playing with this again 
Um, I, I, sorry, what was the question though about Salt Lake? Was there some? Are we going? Well, the, 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 the follow up was, you know, to explore with you, you know, what your impressions were when they went in this direction, and whether it strikes you as a type of design that is particularly hard to balance, because that's one of the things that I've found myself thinking about this kind of a card frequently. I don't. I, I think they're actually probably easier to balance than your average card because you have so many knobs. Like you can. You don't just have the mana cost, you have, you know, a minimum of three different abilities and you can rearrange them and you can, you know, tweak one number on one of them and, and things like that give you a lot of a lot of ability to make cards slightly more powerful or slightly less powerful. Um, and the fact that they inherently happen over multiple turns and give your opponent time to build, you know, defenses, react to them, et cetera, et cetera, makes them also just inherently less scary as cards, if that makes any sense. Like it's it's not like you know an instant or sorcery that costs five or six mana and does some big effect and like if your opponent lets you resolve it you might just win the game like these cards Next tend state. to yeah good good example um, or or the you know the 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 EDH creature the Nyx Bloom whatever Nyx it is Born Agent yeah Nyx Born Agent like again kill it or you're dead right whereas sagas don't do that they kind of have incremental advantages so they tend to be a, I feel like they're a great a great design direction that let let um, let you do a completely different type of card that would have been very difficult to do before sagas. So, some total scale of one to ten. What's your designometer in terms of how interesting these are? Um, from a design standpoint, just as a as a designer looking at interesting cards and going, "Wow, these are interesting." Like sagas are pretty high on the list. I think they they open up a lot of flavorful, resonant design space that would be impossible to do otherwise. Like the um the one that models after the olympics the uh you know first ironian games, games or whatever it yeah. is um is a perfect example of the two elspeth ones like they let you it's it's the first time we've had cards that can tell stories and they do it pretty well actually so you know previously unavailable design resonant space now available that that's great so i think they do a lot there hmm. yeah um, I, I agree with all that is there any card or cards in this file that you want to point out or speak to or have some thoughts on something that we might miss as non-game designers i mean specifically as non-game designers i think so broadly speaking there, there's a lot of times that you should just look at a card and you should say why did r&d make this card and that'll often lead you down some interesting paths like why you know why why did they do this thing now rather than some other time um as far as specific card, like an example, uh, which mean doesn't really have a lot of speculation. Example, uh, sorry, doesn't have a lot of speculation at application. But Destiny Spinner, it's an uncommon with a pile of text, and it's a you know the two three your your creature enchantment spells can't be countered plus a mana sync ability that counts your enchantments to make a land into an XX. Um, the only way that this survived, you have to ask yourself, why did an uncommon get this much text and this many interesting abilities? And there's a reason. R&D is doing something here. I don't know what it is, and it doesn't really matter because it's an uncommon, so speculation isn't going to matter there. But like, that's an example of like, why is this here? It's funny you mention that because this definitely flagged my... I, I noticed this. I'm like, that's... I feel like you could have printed this without the land animation clause. Absolutely. And, that was, and frankly, you probably could have... Cast that at, put that at rare given Gaia's Herald, and you're like, hmm, 
okay, like that's something. But to have an uncommon and then have the animation, I was like, that is a that is a lot going on on an uncommon. Like they clearly want expect this to be played as an answer and standard. I almost wondered, do you? Th- do they look at a card like this? Like, is it possible this card was rare and they went, you know what? The types of players who want, who hate having their cards countered are very casual players. So we're going to move this rare down to uncommon so that the type of player who wants access to the uncounterable effect can get it cheaply. Is that a thing that happens? Um, uh, it actually is. We de- They definitely have this idea in R&D of, of budget players, people who, who don't buy a ton of packs that kind of just play with what they have access to. Um, and it is it is fairly well known that the more casual are, the more likely it is that you hate having your things countered and killed. The question in my mind is, if it got moved from rare down to uncommon, why did the land animation ability survive? If the reason that they moved it from rare down to uncommon was to give a casual player an easy card to deal with, then you put a line of text on it that... Um, basically makes them look the other way. Does that make any sense? If you have if you have trinket text on a card that tells you here's a thing this card does, even if the card would be good without that text, you put the text on there and suddenly the more casual player is going to look at that text go, I can't use that and they're going to ignore the card. Hmm. So so it's actually anti-casual to have that line of text on there because the player who just wants the can't countered effect and goes, well, I'm not going to be playing an enchantment-heavy deck, so that second ability is not going to do anything. This card isn't for me. Hmm. Interesting. So how about the return to the five main Theros gods, the monocolored gods, Alexis? How, how do you rank the the results of them revisiting these characters? I'm... So just from a, like, excited-to-play-with-it perspective, I think, I mean, everyone knows Helios has ridiculous power... It's got infinite combos, and even without them, I think it's actually a fairly he- strong card. Heliod Suncrown, uh, yeah. Heliod, you're right, sorry, Heliod. Um, the rest of them don't excite me that much, honestly, this time around. They they seem less powerful, more difficult to abuse, higher cost for activation abilities, things like that, compared to the, the last time. Um, or, or weird restrictions, like the, the sneak attack one, saying red or colorless, or was it red or artifact creature, like great, so now I can't sneak in half the stuff that would be fun, and I can't play it in my red-green deck. Um, I also noticed that the gods this time around seemed a little less compelling. The first time they were like, Thassa seemed great, and then you saw Perforos, and you're like, that's a lot of triggers, and um, I remember Heliod looked good. He ended up not working very well, but all of the gods definitely read, I felt like, a lot better the first time around. This time, I'm just kind of thinking about the old ones. And I'm like, this seems worse, this seems worse, this seems worse. Like, Perforos, yeah, he's a, people are like, oh, sneak attack. I'm like, yeah, sure, for eight mana. Like, you just cast a damn creature at that point. So, yep. Uh, it, I have a theory on that. I feel like the gods, the gods are going to be chase cards pretty much no matter what they do, at least to some degree. Gods are awesome. They're They're inherently a cool idea. They're they're big, powerful, enchantment, indestructible creatures. So they may just not have put as much power there as they otherwise would have because they don't need to to sell those cards. Hmm. Um, it almost makes me think that maybe the demigods are actually better this time around compared to the gods in terms of power level. Of course, those are uncommon, so mm-hmm. you know less opportunity there. Um, Do I was, I was, a little, the I was a little surprised to see the demigods, basically the entire design space, just kind of hinging on devotion for power or toughness. 
Um, it didn't really seem that there was much more going on there. Um, I think the, I think there are actually three of the five I've got my eyes on. Actually, I think the red one, the white one, and the blue one are all potentially really good. Um, which turns out two of those are, I think two, two or three of those. I don't remember the white one, but the red one and the blue one are power, which is obviously generally going to be more powerful. Um, and they both have, all three of those have effects that I think could potentially put an aggressive or devotion style deck over the top. Uh, the white one, the white one mainly because it combos really well with Heliod's or Heli, Heliod. Um, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to say. One of the problems here, of course, is that Heliod, Suncrown, plus Walking Ballista has already been flagged as essentially being on a ban watch list right, for Pioneer. Right. Exactly. Um, so that that cuts into any much of my excitement. I think Perforos Bronze Blooded might get there uh, a little further down the road. It's already got a couple of pretty sassy dragons that it can pull into play and do a lot of nasty things with. And we are headed into Ikoria which is basically Godzilla World, where I'm expecting some kind of unique mechanical um, design space to be explored. I keep thinking about Big Furry Monster from Unhinged or Unglued or whatever that was, where there was yeah. like two cards you put together. Meld. Um, what, do, you, do you have any... Are you harboring any suspicions about where they're headed with Ikoria? I, I feel like... So last time they did a set based around big things, it was very much building up to them in some way. So Rise of the Eldrazi, like there was lots of ways to create monsters. Um, it included auras, it included ramping into these big creatures. They've showed us meld. They've shown us a lot of ways to do this. Um, what <clears throat> I, I feel like they've shown a um, willingness to reuse mechanics a lot more nowadays. So it wouldn't surprise me if it's some combination of existing things, emerge, meld, those kind of things. Um, we do know that we're getting power toughness, or sorry, uh, keyword counters in some form. At least we have very strong reason to believe we're getting that based on leaked information um, from distributors. Uh, that's a whole lot of ways of saying I don't have a strong idea of what the key mechanic to make big creatures is going to be, but I suspect it's not going to be just here's a big creature. I suspect it's going to be, you have to do something to create that big creature out of some other smaller creature, whether it's monstrous or meld or, or putting counters on it or something like that. Sorry, so what, what was that spoiler <clears throat> that you said we know about? Because I'm not sure I caught that. Um, so if you look at the information on, the information that is on a site, a distributor site of what is in Ikoria booster packs, there is something about token cards or counter cards or something, and it's similar to how they had them in the... Um, Amonkhet? Amonkhet. Um, but there was something in there that made it either either said it was or strongly implied that those token cards would be keywords. Like it said something like keyword token cards or something like that. Um, and we already have one card that demonstrates that, oddly enough, from Mystery Boosters, where it says put a flying counter on target creature. And so I have a very strong suspicion that that's going to be something in in Ikoria. So yeah, like artifact tap to put a keyword of your choice on a creature. Yeah, something some some combat something like that, yeah. Uh... So you're you basically build Voltroning your creatures with keywords. That's interesting. <clears throat> One of the other things that somebody suggested to me was that 
Wizards also does the Transformers uh, TCG. And then in mm-hmm. Transformers, they have the thing where you unfold the card into a bigger version. Mm-hmm. Um, do you th- could you see them going that far with Ikoria? Um, yeah, actually, I could totally see that. I mean, they did something similarly off the wall with Meld. It wasn't this. It's not conceptually the same. It's more like BFM than it is uh, an unfolding card. But it's very much sure. in the realm of like. You didn't expect this. This was kind of out of left field to create a creature bigger than it's the sum of its parts, as it were. Um, if they did the folding cards, they would probably start outside the game in some form, whether they're in your right. sideboard or exile or whatever. But I would totally see that happening. I mean, that really isn't that far off from um, essentially the checklist cards from Innistrad, right? Like right. they printed cards that effectively were sleeve playable, so they gave you just a tool to use it. So you could have a checklist yep. card and be like, name what, pick what god it is supposed to be, and then you have the god card off in your, off in your card. And they box. have, they have the technology to make sure that if you get a, let's call it a, you know, a three sided card for lack of a better term, if you get one of these unfolding three sided cards you can get the checklist card in the same pack. So you're guaranteed. Maybe you just pick them together so that you don't have to worry about Hmm. representing that thing. Hmm. Right. The, um, the other thing I was, I was, uh, musing about on social media last night was whether the, either the showcase cards or potentially just the Japanese boxes, but I think we're, we're past that now. So I would guess the showcase cards, um, for Ikoria would be done in like a 1950s, 60s Godzilla style. I could totally see that. I, I certainly expect whatever the big thing in the set is, in this case, Monsters, is going to have a showcase frame. Showcase frames tend to have an art style. Art style, The art style you're suggesting fits, so put the pieces together. It's a pretty reasonable prediction. Mm-hmm. I saw your so, suggestion I mean, I, I, of I, I that, could... James, and I thought it sounded cool. I mean, that's a pretty, I mean, there's some, certainly depends which way they go with it. Like, I'm pretty disappointed in the showcase frames for Theros Beyond Death by comparison to, say, you know, the art on Elspeth Conquers Death, which is not a showcase card, one of the sagas. That would be the style that I was hoping for. Right. Um, Or even something like what they did on A Crow in War or First Star Rowan Games. Um, You know, personally, I think would have been cooler. But I guess we'll see. Um, so is there any other cards that you had flagged Alexis as interesting things? Um, <clears throat> I mean, I had, I had a ton of cards that I looked at and said, there's something interesting about this. Um, I'm just going to kind of go down the list kind of quickly. Um, eat to extinction is a card that pros have said might actually be really good. You look at it and you go, why is this rare? That should be the first question you ask yourself. Why is this card rare? A removal spell being rare. There needs to be a reason. Um, it's telling us that R&D thinks that there's a constructed reason to pay four mana for a removal spell, um, which tells us they think escape is really good and gods are really good one or the other, so you can kind of keep going in that direction. Um, doesn't mean the card's actually going to end up being good, but it has a really good shot, even though it's a four mana removal spell in my mind. And so it could go the um, route of Haraska's Contempt, which got to 15 exactly, or $20, even exactly. though it was a fall rare. Exactly, and it, was, it, it, it had like metagame reasons that that card was better than it would have been otherwise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Woe Strider is the first manaless tapless sack outlet we've had since I don't even remember that at least is playable. Um, Yahini, I think, is the most recent one, and this card's better than Yahini in my mind. Um, 
and it makes goats. So yep, it makes goats. Um, it's you know look at look at Yehini. It's it's in ten thousand EDH decks. It hit four dollars during its time and standard. So you know if you can pick up Wolf Strider at a low cost, I'd run it. I think it's got a lot of sh- a lot of shot at being a reasonable card in standard Pioneer and EDH, mm. um, just because we never see these things anymore. Like that's that's the thing that jumped out at me is is why is R and D doing this? We don't see these anymore. Right. Um, and and we're also in a standard format where Corval has been a force to be reckoned with with you know Cat uh, Cauldron decks and Wostrider yep. probably slots in there and makes it even better. Yeah. If, if anything that. I mean, yes, it goes right into the deck. If anything, that makes it harder for us to have a shot at getting these cheap, but maybe maybe we'll get lucky. Um, the other thing that jumped out at me as an interesting thing was Protean Thaumaturge, which I don't I haven't heard anybody talking about this card, but it's a two mana clone. It has it has hoops you have to jump through, but it's a two mana clone. And Phantasmal Image is the only time that's ever happened within reason, and that card was really good. So why you know R&D stays away from cheap clones for a reason because you pay two mana and get something that somebody else paid four or five mana for you know you're getting huge mana discount and it also just feels bad for casual players casual players hate when you steal your stuff the clones are like level level away from that um so the question is can this card be abused and I'd be looking really closely at this one so yeah, constel- it's a constellation card and that might be part of what people are giving it a pass because last time around yep. constellation didn't really do anything um, whenever oh, an enchantment but... enters the battlefield under your control, you may have Protean Thaumaturge become a copy of another target creature, except it has this ability. Yep. The difference between this and other constellation cards is you don't have like a lot of constellation cards. You have to trigger turn after turn to get the value out of this. This card, you follow it up on turn three or turn four with you know an enchantment creature, and you've gotten your value. Maybe you want to upgrade it later, but you've cloned something. You did the thing, right? Hmm. I don't know. I, I think it's I, an interesting card. I, I think I missed entirely up until now that it, it's not till end of turn. Yeah, it is a permit. So and, you can, on turn three, you can play an enchantment, an enchantment, make this a version of whatever creature they played on turn three. So you like basically kept par- parity with them. And then later on, if they trumpet again, you can still come over the top and recopy and steal their big threat. That is... Uh, that's definitely got some depth to it there. It's kind of got the right yep. pieces. And keep in mind that, <clears throat> excuse me, blue has thirst for meaning, and it has two two mana enchantments that draw cards when they come into play right now. So, like, maybe those aren't good enough, but it's definitely got some pieces of the puzzle here. And there's also Timurit Calls the Dead. There's Treacherous Blessing, which is on my radar as a unconditional, at least up front, Three three uh, card draw spell for three, right. um, which reminds me of when Painful Truth was doing some work. Um, That's right, forgotten about that one. Timurit Timurit calls the dead is really high on my radar too because it's um, people people are talking about it. Oh, you might not always get zombies. You might not always get zombies, but people aren't looking at it as the floor being three mana. Put seven cards in your graveyard. That's your floor because it puts right. it does three. It does three and then it dies for the seventh card. So. That's a lot of cards in your graveyard if you're playing an escape deck, even if you don't get any of the other effects. Right. And that and that final trigger doesn't seem like a big deal, but at, get, gaining some life against aggro decks and then scrying to make sure you find whatever the next puzzle piece was to pull your synergies together is not insignificant. Oh, man. Can you imagine attacking mm-hmm. with that Thaumaturge and to like a 5-5 five, five and your opponent's like, what is this moron doing? And they block. <laughs> and then you cast Starlet Mantle, which... 
is an enchantment and makes your thaumaturge their creature, but it gets plus one, plus one, and hexproof, so it kills their creature. Oh, that would be savage. <laughs> um, all right, so we got maybe like one more card from Alexis that uh, made it onto your radar. Just made it. Uh, I think the only other thing that jumped out at me as just being weird, and maybe this has been talked about already, but but Thassa's Oracle, the two mana one three comes into play, kind of <laughs> yeah. scry X's, mm-hmm. not really scry. Um, that card being a rare, and and note if you've read the articles from Wizards, it was a rare before it had the weird win the game text. At one point, it was a rare with just the weird scry text, and so. The fact that this card was rare at one point just like that tells me R&D thinks it's really good. They were playing it. They put it at rare because it was powerful, not because it was weird, not because it did anything new, not because it did anything complicated. They put it at rare because it was good. So it may look boring. It may look, oh, this is just you know Omen Speaker, but I think it might actually be better than it looks for that reason. Hmm. And, and on top of that, it's got a bunch of ridiculous win-the-game combos. Right, yeah, I mean... That might happen also, and that's kind of a nice, exactly, a nice side note of, like, EDH and, and maybe maybe some other older Eternal formats make this card have other outs, potentially. I, I just did ping my radar because I looked at it and went, well, this seems like it's probably a better Omen Speaker for the most part with ridiculous upside that Omen Speaker never really had. Because Omen Speaker scried three, right? Um, Open speaker. Uh, I think it only scried two. Actually, so am I wrong? Is this actually just the same thing as Open Speaker it at its three. floor? It's not quite the same because you can't put both cards back on top. Okay. Um, so it's, but it's still quite this. close. Like even at its floor, it's quite close to Omen Speaker, which was very yep, heavily played at the time. So uh yeah i was wondering about this you know if these are like 40 cents that might be worth trying to grab a brick at these because they even if they hit two or three bucks that's a great buy list angle yeah between this card and a couple other cards i suspect that blue devotion was a serious deck in r&d that actually had legs doesn't mean it's good in in the real world r&d is you know one several orders of magnitude less powerful than the pros in aggregate at finding the best decks but R&D thinks it's a good deck, so let's find out if it is. For whatever that means. Right, exactly. All right, so one one last topic uh, off of Theros Beyond Death. Uh, Pat Chapin announced the other day that he got tapped to come in as a remote consultant, I think, on Play Design, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Pat, Pat Chapin? Pat, Patrick uh, Sullivan. Pa- Patrick Sullivan. Unless was it was, Patrick Sullivan? Sorry. Unless it was both of them, but I definitely Patrick Sullivan. Beyond right. Shadow of a Doubt, so Patrick Sullivan. The, the, the premise of being brought in as a remote play design consultant, how much impact do you think that person can have based on your experience? So I don't actually know if they've set up any way to play remotely at this point. It was certainly something that was talked about. We talked about it 10 years ago. We were talking about, is there a way to get Magic Online to the point where you can play, you know, we can just import a new set and the cards that will work will work and the cards that don't work, you can just use Avatar of Congress or whatever to make them work, um, which is just a cheat tool. Uh, <clears throat> it's possible they've hit that or it's possible that they're going to do it some other way like via, you know, streaming cameras or whatever. I, I don't see a world where they haven't figured out some way 
for Patrick to at least do some amount of playtesting because that's how you demonstrate that decks need to be like that's how you demonstrate that a card needs to be made stronger or weaker um, is you, you you play it now some amount of that might just be they think oh Patrick Sullivan is going to come up with lots of interesting decks and some of that we'll just test for them you know in our in our little R and D tournaments or whatever but uh, do do the challenges of meeting scheduling requirements for arena mean that playtesting still happens in paper as opposed to on that platform? Uh, I th- you know, it wouldn't surprise me if at some point that they're able to do playtesting internally on Arena, but it's definitely a challenge. It is a really difficult engineering challenge to get software to the point where you can just import sets and have them work, even if they were templated perfectly. And remember, designers don't template cards. They don't write cards the way that they need to be written. So Arena's not going to get it the first time. You have to go, oh... You know, you meant to do this, and then you go back and you fix it, report your important stuff. So, like the tool chain, the tool chain to make that happen is huge. It's a lot of work. That being said, we talked about it. It's a thing that multiple people talked about while I worked at Wizards, and it was an idea that some people wanted to make happen. We just never got around to it. Um, and I, I don't see that happening, honestly. I, I feel like, given given how it feels that the arena team is still playing catch up with features that they want for money making purposes having them have the extra engineering to dedicate to that sort of stuff seems unlikely. Alrighty. Well, huge thank yous to Alexis Johnson for Jansen, sorry, um, for joining us this evening. Uh, former uh, great designer search winner, designer uh, with Wizards of the Coast, software developer, um, all around talented individual. Thank you so much for joining us on Fast Finance. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Alexis. Uh, All right, uh, that's a wrap for this week. Where can people find you online, Travis? Uh, I'm on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N, and I used to do the Watchtower series, uh, but for now, you will find me here every week on, uh, on MGG Fast Finance. Alexis, before we forget, where can our listeners catch you? Um, absolutely. You can find me on Twitter at Alexis Jansen. It's uh, A-L-E-X-I-S-J-A-N-S-O-N. I'm always happy to hear from folks about their thoughts around magic design. Okay. Thanks so much. And James, yourself? You guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my occasional articles on MTGPrice.com. And I am constantly haunting the Pro Trader Discord, helping our members. Uh, I'd like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Um, we should print, uh, point out, since we di- uh, didn't earlier, that IDDQD was the winner of the $25 gift certificate from Cool Stuff Inc. this evening. We'll track you down in the Discord to get that in your hands. I bet he feels invincible. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering single sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Brings us to the end of episode 202. I had a great time. Alexis, thank you so much for joining us this week. It was uh, insightful, and I hope to have you back again. And James, a pleasure as always. I will see you next week. 
Thank you, Travis. And we'll see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Thank you.